Okay, I think we're live on Deprogrammed. Let's, uh, fingers crossed, welcome to Deprogrammed on Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carter Laren, and I am joined, as always, by the bad man Jamma, Carrie Smith. Hi, Carter. Can you hear me? I oh, can. No. Oh, good. Okay. I just expect the worst. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I think we, we okay. potentially have... Uh, we have something working now, Carrie. We must be doing something wrong, but it's working. So um, as always, please hit the subscribe button on YouTube. And I don't know, what else do we need to say before we introduce our guest, Carrie? Nothing. I'm very excited. I'll let, okay. I'm going to let you introduce him. Thank you. <laughs> uh, well, today we're very honored to talk to Dr. James Lindsay. Uh, Dr. Lindsay has a doctorate in math and background in physics. But you probably know him because he is the author of four books and essays, many essays, and best known for having led the Grievance Studies Affair whistleblowing probe. You can follow him on Twitter at Conceptual James, and uh, we're super happy to get to talk to him today. Dr. Lindsay, thank you for uh, thank you for joining. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. It appears like tech is working great. Uh, so oh, cool. <laughs> maybe we can start by just uh, having you give a, a really brief description for those who don't know what the hell Grievance Studies is and what you're doing and what you have been doing. Maybe just give a quick overview for, for the audience. Okay, so Grievance Studies, I want to claim that it's a word of our own invention, but it's one of those things where we invented something that somebody else had invented before and we didn't find out till later. So grievance studies is actually an approach to cultural studies that puts uh, social grievances ahead of the search for objective truth. Um, so people who want to do something that kind of looks like sociology, but isn't, that would be cultural studies. Uh, they don't have the sociological rigor. Um, and then they do that by picking their social grievance, the thing that they're upset about. Often you'll see that it's something to do with gender, race, sexuality, ability status, one of these kinds of um, things that you often hear attached to isms um, or other forms of bigotry, racism, sexism, I guess homophobia isn't an ism. Uh, and and they, they start with the grievance and then they try to make arguments for various ideas about how the way the grievance works. Another uh, synonym, I guess you could use for, for grievance studies that we often use to be a little more um, polite is social justice scholarship. So it is the scholarship that is done primarily in fields like gender studies, critical race theory, sexuality studies, queer theory, and so on. That's dedicated to fat studies was another one um, that's dedicated to uh, advancing a social justice agenda, as I said, ahead of finding a, uh, a search for objective truth. And so that's what grievance studies is. What we decided to do about it was write um, 20 academic papers and submit them to the highest ranked journals that we could uh, in those disciplines and see how many we could get accepted. And these papers were broken on purpose. They either had bad methods, bad epistemology, bad morals. Uh, they forwarded morally, not just objectionable, but fairly horrifying conclusions. They uh, drew conclusions that weren't warranted by the arguments or they made extremely biased arguments or presented broken uh, data that should have been obvious that something was wrong, either the analysis or the data itself. And 
we presented those to see what we could get in, and then we were going to report on the results. It turns out we got caught partway through. The Wall Street Journal <laughs> broke the story on us before we got done. Um, but in the time that we did have, we ended up getting seven of our papers accepted, four were published. That's amazing. Those got an honorary uh, status of being one of the best papers in feminist geography um, of I've, the year. Isn't it true? Did um, what, Did new peer review catch one of your papers? Is that how it got flagged? Yeah. So they actually caught two of them, but the second one they caught was the one about the dog parks, which was just completely ridiculous. And um, two things are kind of relevant there. Uh, the other paper they caught before that was fat bodybuilding, but the guy we claimed wrote fat bodybuilding actually exists. He's a real professional bodybuilder who is also a real emeritus professor of history at a real college. So <laughs> look into that, you say, well, I got lost his marbles but okay he exists and no more questions got asked because this stuff's so crazy as it is that nobody asked too many questions when and a lot of people thought it was real and some people were really distraught because their bodybuilding hero had fallen um i've had some people reach out to me and tell me that the dog park paper however was way more ridiculous way less believable and then the author was made up whole cloth and we assigned her to work at a research institute that doesn't exist that we also made up whole cloth um, all of which was was ridiculous. So the research institute was called the Portland Ungendering Research Initiative, uh, P-U-R-I, which we called PURI with the goal of purifying culture. Um, we originally had a website for it with all this crazy stuff we put on there, but then we took it down because it was a gigantic <laughs> giveaway. And then the author's bio claimed that she was a PhD in feminist studies, which was an error that we made when we made this person up really early in our work because we didn't know that only four I think it's in North America, it might be in the US, but there are only four institutions that give a degree in feminist studies at the level of PhD. So a diligent journalist called all four of them and figured out something is probably amiss here. And so after Real Peer Review tweeted it out, um, some journalists started digging around on it and started showing up and, you know, kind of that whole, uh, let's pick at everything going on in college set, like campus reform and and uh, the college fix and so on. And then it got picked up by the National Review and it got picked up, you know, in kind of these other bigger outlets. And eventually a journalist at the Wall Street Journal decided that, that, that writes on these kinds of topics. Uh, decided, Jillian Melcher decided that she was going to look into it. And when the Wall Street Journal started digging into it, you know, everything got a lot more serious really quickly. Uh, it's hard to ignore the Wall Street Journal emailing yeah. us. And the journal itself wasn't ignoring the Wall Street Journal. Uh, so they asked us to prove our identity. And we decided at that point, you know, we weren't about to go into like legit forgery and creating false documents and you know, fake IDs and things like that to continue what we were doing. Um, and we just kind of decided it was time to go public. So yeah, we had seven more papers that were still potentials when we ended up going public and we don't know what would have happened with those. Uh, but some Just to interrupt for a second, yeah. For anybody who's listening and doesn't know, um, Real Peer Review is a real, is a great Twitter. They they actually they highlight a lot of these ridiculous papers, but ones that are actually real um, <laughs> that that someone has submitted seriously. Yes, yes, yes. And um, uh, and so they caught a couple of they caught the dog park one in the body. yeah yeah. So Real Peer Review is a yeah it's a Twitter feed and um, 
if you don't check it out, you should check it out. And I should be clear that they don't, they're not like, I mean, everybody accuses them of being biased against say gender studies or feminist geography or whatever, because they tweet a lot of that, but they also tweet a lot of stuff that's in these weird um, qualitative method studies, which are kind of tangential to this. Um, I don't know exactly what to consider those, but they're really weird. They also picked up on and shared the recent thing where the, uh, the what is it, cellular biology or molecular and cellular biology journals ended up getting some Qigong-based cancer treatment papers that had no methodology in them or whatever. And that was a scandal there that was, was getting uncovered and corrected. So they, they're not, they're dedicated to exposing um, stuff that gets through peer review that shouldn't. Right. Which happens to be mostly in social justice scholarship. Now, so th this is interesting, actually, because we could we could dig into this. Um, I guess maybe before we do that, let's just talk about. So the dog park paper is like funny, right? Uh -huh. There's, there's mm -hmm. the dildo paper. Funny, That's also funny. Right. But yeah. some of the some of them are uh, the, the ones that bother me the most are, are less about the funny one. Like, OK, guys using dildos to anally penetrate themselves makes them more. Tr you know, trans accepting, like, okay, that's funny. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's funny. Right? But yeah. the hoax, the second hoaxes paper was really interesting to me in that you got them to approve of this paper that basically said doing what we're doing without revealing that that's what you're doing is somehow this bad thing that should be, you know, you shouldn't reveal how how broken the system is if it's if it's broken because of what feminism because of patriarchy like why yeah that was a very um meta paper i'm glad you seized on it because almost nobody does so we had kind of three different types of papers we had the really funny ones that like the dog park and i guess fat bodybuilding we had the really scary horrifying ones like the pedagogy paper, the education theory paper, where we suggested putting kids in chains as an educational experience, privileged kids only though. And then we had um, these papers that were kind of true to what uh, the field is actually doing, but advocate for really um, unsettling things, but on a more subtle level. So in this case, the paper argued that it's unethical to use humor in any way against the causes of social justice but it's ethical to use humor for social justice. That was the essence of that paper, um, which we did end up titling When the Joke's on You, which I thought was a <laughs> coup de gras there. But we did that paper to point out that that's how they think, that you're they actually believe that you're not allowed to criticize them. And so while we focused on the use of humor, we drew upon bodies of literature that don't necessarily just use the use of humor. We drew particularly on one scholar, I mean, not to get into inside baseball too much, named Allison Bailey, who talks about how um, if you look at social justice scholarship and you don't come away agreeing, then you didn't truly engage. And she calls the criticism that you generate a, quote, shadow text, which follows along like a shadow, but doesn't actually engage with like physical reality or whatever. So, it so there's no null hypothesis for critical theory, basically. That's yeah, the, the idea is that if you don't agree with theory, then you just didn't, you didn't try hard enough, which yeah. is at that point, you know, I mean, it's really for me ironic. I don't want to get too dorky, but this generation that's all taking this on is like the Harry Potter generation. And that's like one of the huge points 
of the last book in Harry Potter is that if you have that kind of a method working for you, you can justify anything. The little hero Hermione Granger says it, you know, explicitly, and it gets it got quoted everywhere for a while as a meme that if uh, you just have a method that there's no evidence against it, as a, as that's proof that it exists then you can prove anything exists. And that's kind of what this system does is it cooks the books because if you try to present argument or evidence against it, then you're, you either fail to engage, that's um, generating a shadow text or willful ignorance or active ignorance. Those are terms that they use to describe that. You are um, just trying to preserve your privilege. Mm-hmm. That's privilege preserving epistemic pushback. That's another Allison Bailey concept, for example. Or you are... Uh, engaging in some kind of false consciousness like internalized misogyny or seeking neoliberal reward or something like that. Or finally, that you have been inculcated by your privilege to not be able to handle the fact that what you're being faced with is true when that's white fragility, for example. I mean, it's just- You can't handle the truth. That's the argument. Yeah, exactly. You can't handle the truth. And and her phrases are so, Robin DiAngelo is the, the progenitor of white fragility and her phrases are so crazy. Like, white people don't have the racial stamina necessary to do anti-racism work. And then that they're fragile and they break down and they throw a fit. Yeah. You call a white person racist over and over again and tell them that they're automatically participants in white supremacy, which everybody recognizes as being one of the morally most abjectly bad things ever. And yeah, they're going to throw a fit. And then you say, Oh, that's proof that we're telling the truth about you. I mean, yeah. It's well, circular they arguing. They, Sorry, Carrie, go ahead. Uh, I was just saying they do a lot of circular arguments and they have, um, it's it's what I call the SJW magic words. So I don't know how much you know about our podcast, but I was in, I, subs- I believed all of this crap, like for 20 years. I was a women's studies minor. That's where I kind of got indoctrinated. I took a lot of critical race studies, classes, queer studies. Um, but uh, But then I went on to use it in my career. I worked in entertainment and I was like, pushing comedians like promoting Mm -hmm. comedians not exclusively but a lot of them who were doing social justice comedy Mm -hmm. um comedy yeah so my my understanding of these words is more like we've been trying on this podcast to kind of unravel what this is and that's Mm -hmm. why i'm so excited to have you talking about the from the academic side like what all these terms mean because us it's more of just like an anecdotal thing a lot of the time right more of like well those things are what i call the magic words white fragility they have a series of magic words they use to shut down discussion it's like I totally get that. Back when I was doing a lot of the atheist stuff, I called those, you call them magic words. I called them, I mean, this is dorky. I'm sorry. My, my own made up words are usually dorky, but it was, I called them talisman memes. So it's just a (laughs) meme that you can deploy like a talisman to scare away the bad idea. Yeah, (laughs) that's good. I like it. (laughs) It's like, you know, somebody's like, I don't believe you white fragility. And they wave the magic thing in front of you and you have to go away now because you know, they said white fragility. It's, it's preposterous. It's also boring by the way that it's yes. so predictable what what's going to be said back to you that it's just boring at this point uh is, but you are right and it's interesting because you know you would have seen it mostly then from the activist side and there's this kind of argument that we've been in many many times um sometimes quite heatedly about does this come from the scholarship or does it come from the activism and this reminds me of another dorky story when i first got on twitter once upon a time 2013, maybe 12 something. I don't know. The most epic Twitter fight I ever got on in the first year I was on Twitter. Like, I was like, what is this dump after this argument? 
was about whether the dictionary records language as it's being used or whether the dictionary guides the use of language. And my answer was both. It's obviously both. And people on both sides of that argument, which was raging for some reason, just were dogpiling me that I could, I was the biggest idiot possible that it had to be one or the other. And theirs was clearly the right answer. And I was like, how can it not be both? You have this use of language and the dictionary is paying attention. You know, the new words get added. The people who compile the dictionary are paying attention to words that get a certain amount of use. They put them in the dictionary. And then when an average person wants to understand how to use a word correctly, they go to the dictionary, which is a reference material to figure out how to use the word correctly. So that constrains how they choose to use their words and don't use their words. So both things are happening at the same time and they feed into one another. But that's, I think, what's happening with the activist scholarship mm -hmm. uh, dichotomy. So the scholars are coming up with these ideas and the activists on the ground are coming up with these ideas. And so the scholars are drawing off of the activists and then the activists are looking at the scholars to legitimize what they're saying and saying, oh, look, there's a study that says this thing we've been talking about, except as I think what we showed, if anything, is that it's possible that that study started with the conclusion and just cooked an argument up for it and then became a study that was never a study. It's it's a piece of fiction or bad philosophy or something like that. Um, so I see that's like the dynamic that goes on that I think Brett Weinstein called ideal laundering, uh, ultimately, is these ideas through some process are making it their way to the scholars. The scholars do their, you know, high, high, high culture. Yes, this is, in fact, I've started talking about it in terms of high culture and low culture, the activists are the low culture and the scholars are the high culture of the same thing. And so they refine it and put it out in this very formal jargon, you know, respectable academic language, get it published in real academic journals. And then the activists cite that. And the, the scholars are also professors. So they teach it to future activists who will then definitely cite it. And it's like, I see how the whole dynamics playing out, but it is an idea that's like the laundering of money, but with concepts, it's giving legitimacy to something through a false process. Um, and in this case, it's using the academic process to get that legitimacy rather than say, you know, shell companies or whatever money launderers do. I have no idea how, how to launder money. I'm like <laughs> office space, like looking, calling up a Coke dealer so I can launder money. So I have a question for you. Why did you choose to hide the names of the reviewers? Because when you look at your stuff, even in your Google Drive, you've got all the reviewer letters, but you've redacted everything. Sure. Okay. Um, so that, that's a good question. Nobody's asked it. You guys are asking good ones. What was the decision there? Okay. So first, let me clarify a point. We, we don't know the reviewers' names, but we know the editors' names. And that's a slight distinction. I don't want anybody to nitpick this. So reviewers are, are and it's actually important to the peer review process, reviewers are typically anonymous. You typically don't know, and it's blinded. The editor knows who the reviewers are and who the authors are. But So I guess as a single blind, but the, the authors and the reviewers don't know who each other would be. Um, and that's all hidden. So I don't know who any of the people who reviewed our papers are, except in a couple of cases where they've spoken up or reached out to me or something like that. Uh, but in the process, I didn't. Now the editors, um, their names are obviously attached to things, but this, contrary to the, to the ethics hearing that was fired at Peter Boghossian uh, at PSU over this, Portland State, um, the thing is we never wanted this to be about those people. Those people, uh, we didn't, we don't want them to be harassed. I actually kind of felt bad for them 
a lot of times, not like in the, oh, you pitiful thing, but it's like, we were, you know, kind of deceiving them and I don't like that. So we didn't want it to be about the people. We didn't want people to go dogpile whoever the editor of gender, place and culture is for honoring our thing. Um, it just doesn't seem that it, adding those names adds anything. Granted, if people wanted to know them, they can go look them up. That's all public, but it's like, at least we can do the responsible thing and put one layer barrier uh, on that because I don't think it's necessary to, to any of our purposes to point out who the specific people were. It's um, not about individuals. That's the thing. Especially it's not about journal editors. Um, the, the journal editors are often scholars, of course, but the um, reviewers are the ones who are actually the one, I, I know that the editor makes the final decision, but the academic publishing process really depends on the peer reviewers most. The, the journal editor reads the paper and says, does this have interest for the journal we produce? Is it roughly sound enough? Um, if so, I'll send it to peer review. And then when they send it off to peer review, then those people actually read through the paper carefully and nitpick the paper and decide where it is publishable or where it's too weak and where it needs to be strengthened or whether it's not publishable at all. And then they, they actually write those reports and refer them back to the editor who then just reads them and makes a decision based upon what the reviewers told them. So they, they aren't, I don't want to say they're irrelevant to the process, obviously, because that's not fair to the work that they're doing, but they're not what we were concerned about. We were concerned about the academic culture in which all of this is embedded. And you can kind of see the editors as gatekeepers more, I mean, yes and no, but mostly they're gatekeepers rather than active participants. At yeah, least yeah. in that role. They might I think be, that makes sense. Yeah, they might be active participants in other roles, but not in that role specifically. Now you chose, so you, some of the papers were desk rejected and some of them, some of them were sent back for review. And so you got some feedback mm -hmm. and now after this process is, has been complete or at least whatever you could complete of it, what, what's changed about your understanding of their ideology and methods and how you thought the system was broken going in and, and what you think about it now based on feedback and rejections and that kind of stuff. Oh, wow. That's a complicated question. I hope I don't run on too long about this. So we went into this very naively, I will gladly say, and we thought that they wouldn't be able to distinguish true nonsense that cites the right stuff and says the vaguely right things in really ridiculous ways. Um, and we, we had those dreams shattered really quickly. Uh, we submitted our first papers starting in, in like early September of 2017. And by the week of Thanksgiving, we had realized we can't pull this off. We can't do hoaxes, just straight hoaxes. Um, they don't get fooled by that. There's more going on here. So we learned that there was an actual academic culture there that is deep and well, uh, well organized and mature. Um, so it's not possible as like what Sokol did in 95 and six, where he wrote just a nonsense paper and submitted it to to social text, a literary criticism journal or social criticism journal. And they couldn't tell that it wasn't real. They thought it was, they thought the nonsense, like provable nonsense was like profound ideas. That represents something that was going on 20 years ago that does not seem to be going on now, except maybe in some of these uh, qualitative methods journals. So I, I don't know. Um, 
So I realize that their, their culture is well-developed and it is a true academic culture. I hesitate to call it a disciplined culture because their methodologies are not disciplined. They're passing off um, philosophy and bad philosophy, better to be called sophistry because they often start with the conclusion and then work their way backwards to it. Um, but they're passing that off as though it's something like sociology and they don't have the rigor in most cases to, to do that. And then in cases where it is sociology that's being done, they enter it with certain assumptions and, and certain biases that prevent them from being able to see where they're going wrong in their analysis or how their analysis is pushing them in one direction. So maybe the biggest thing I took from the peer reviewers, other than the fact that they have a mature academic discipline on their hands, is that uh, the wind blows in one direction and it blows very forcefully. It's a very political thing where you would expect to see academic rigor. You see a little bit of it, don't get me wrong. You see the, the vestiges like you've not cited the, enough people or you haven't cited the right people or you didn't quite understand this argument. You should expect to see that kind of stuff when you do an academic paper and that's, that's a form of academic rigor. But then what you see instead of say, you know, skeptical uh, philosophical analysis where it's philosophy or careful data analysis. Not to say, again, it's not a universal thing, but it's kind of a, a general trend. Um, that's all been replaced. You expect there to be this kind of rigor to make conclusions about how society operates. And it's been replaced by just having to navigate this minefield of offense-based rules and people trying to outwoke each other. And it's really obvious if you read through those reviewer reports that in many cases, I know it's different for, for y'all's ex user experience because you don't have access to the original draft before review. You just have the reviewer comments in the final drafts. But it's really clear that they were pushing the thing, the, the papers more into the ideology rather than you know saying, hey, wait, maybe this is too far. At no point did any of the ideological points that we presented get so never we got we never got feedback that said that goes too far. We kept thinking we were at the edge of too far, and we always got pushed further. And then later, we'd usually find a paper that already goes further than we had planned to go anyway. So um, the ideology is cooked into this much more deeply than we suspected when we started out. Um, and now we're working backwards and trying to explain why. Even some of the papers that were rejected, uh, looking through the review uh, comments on the rejection, it wasn't a, it wasn't what you would expect where it's like, this is ridiculous. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're jumping to conclusions here and just forcing an ideology. It was basically like, well, write it better and needs to be, you know, there's something right. really interesting here. And I hope in the future you can fix this paper and, and get it, get it out. It's like, they're not that harsh. Now, I don't know. Is that just a, are reviewers just overly benevolent and nice to people or, or well, is in some cases, I think that sadly seems to be the answer. Um, a couple of the people who have gone public as having been reviewers have or have reached out to me or gone public, one or the other. I think only one has gone public that I can think of. But he explicitly said that he was trying to just help the paper along, um, which I mean, I get it. And I don't know where that comes from. I don't know if it's there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of professional pressure to get papers. Um, there's a, there's a lot of different things going on where we also live in a self-esteem soaked culture where hurting somebody's feelings is bad. I don't know how much it plays into it that criticizing somebody who you perceive might be a, my, uh, you know, lower than you on the oppression of 
or the, the matrix of oppression, like maybe it's not okay to criticize a, a black lesbian or something like that, criticize their work. So you have to be more encouraging and lifted up. I don't know how much that plays a role, obviously, but there are a lot of factors that are leading some reviewers to being too nice. There are other cases where the reviewers were quite rigorous. I should be very clear about that. I have a great example from that dildo-based paper we can get into if you want. Uh, but one of the reviewers there did a great job, and anybody can go look and see, I think, as the third reviewer who's on point. Um, but in other cases, it's I think that they're just so steeped in the idea that these are great novel ways to talk about these concepts and, and which are the critical theory, the postmodern critical theory stuff that they were very enthusiastic. Uh, even where though, like for example, in the paper we wrote about Hooters, um, there were a lot of questions raised in the review about the methodology that we used, that we hadn't described the methodology adequately. And so I spent a lot of time reading up on what methodologies we claim to have used without knowing what they are really. And made that section much more robust, but even what I wrote it should, still shouldn't have been acceptable because it literally, it doesn't explicitly say, but it it actually does say that we cherry picked the data to, to reach the conclusion we were oh. looking for. It says wow. that we recorded nearly 10,000 minutes of tableside conversation and interviews and Hooters restaurants. And then the way that we took our data to analyze was that we listened back to those recordings after the fact and kept a notebook and only transcribed the parts that were relevant. We didn't transcribe <laughs> parts that didn't support our, our hypothesis. And so then we analyzed the data that we had transcribed. It says that in the paper and after we had been grilled, and this is actually in a significant multidisciplinary journal, after we had been grilled upon the idea that, uh, you know, the methods were sketchy and sketchy as hell and what we had described, the fact that we had explicitly written in there that we cherry picked that data did not get picked up and did not raise a red flag. And of course, I think part of the reason the editor sent a private note uh, on one of the edit, one of the drafts, I, we never publicized this, I don't think, but is, you know, comments embedded in the, in the Word document. And the comment was something like, I've never been to a Hooters, but I always imagined it would be this bad or worse, but I had no idea it's this bad or something. It's like, so it conformed exactly to the stereotype that had been formed in the person's mind. So of course it's gotta be publishable, but that's the point we were trying to convey is that if you speak to their stereotyping, then they'll run with it. They, then they won't be sufficiently critical. So there are a lot of factors there. Occasionally the reviewers being too nice, but other times it's just, they were being told what they wanted to be told. Can you speak a little bit to, because mostly we've been talking about the, the papers that are in the humanities. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe you're, I believe I had an interaction with you on Twitter a while back where you clued me into the existence. I said something about how this would be moving into the hard sciences soon. And, and I think it was you that were like, it's already there and linked me to um, uh, an astronomy yeah. forum. Yeah, it's it's when I say it's already in the hard sciences, this is very different um, the way that it is. Uh, also, what we were just talking about to link that in, we did write a paper about feminist astronomy. It is actually what we did was an almost paragraph by paragraph rewrite of the feminist glaciology paper, just retooling it for astronomy. And the point was that astronomy is sexist unless it includes feminist and queer astrology as methods. Um, so horoscopes interpreted through feminist and queer theory. Um, <laughs> I'm not kidding. And so uh -huh. 
the peer one of the it did not it get in it was given an astronaut in the future and uh, <laughs> one of the peer reviewers wrote that they were very sympathetic to the project because while these critical methods have made inroads into the softer sciences like psychology and biology they have not had success getting into the hard sciences like astronomy and physics and then the, pro the the paper wasn't rejected. It was given the opportunity to be revised and resubmitted. And it probably would have got in, I think, if we would have done pretty serious revisions to it according to what they asked us to. But uh, yeah, I did link you to an astronomy forum that was, I think, in 2015. And it was citing sites like Everyday Feminism, which nobody can distinguish from parody. I, don't, I still don't know if that site's fake. Yeah. I can't tell. I keep thinking it's, it is. And then I think, no, it can't possibly be. And then uh, well, it has to be. I have no idea. But they were they were citing that. And these are professionals. We're citing it to de define their community guidelines. So where you're seeing it creep into the hard sciences, although they're sympathetic to the project of it getting into the sciences like, properly, you're seeing two things happen. One is you're seeing it take over the communities of people participating. And in particular, that's going to be relevant less in terms, at least immediately, in terms of what science is and is not publishable, but that becomes a concern eventually. But it's who's getting the very few coveted tenured professor spots or, or, or other high prestige or, or useful career positions. It's, there's a huge push to put uh, diversity into the, these departments. It, is that right or wrong headed? I don't know. I mean, I understand where the, the heart is, but I don't know that the heart is the thing that needs to be guiding. And I've seen some of the methods that they use in some departments. There's one that's called stride S T R I D E. And you can look it up. It's used at a bunch of places and it's based straight in this grievance studies stuff and is really concerning. And it's deeply baked in an implicit and unconscious bias research. And the, some of the methods have been described to me and I don't trust them. I think that they're really frightening, in fact. Um, there's, for example, uh, not to get too far into the weeds because the other method should come up, which is that they, they create studies of fields in parallel. And that's a big thing. Um, but to, get, to give you an example, uh, it's known, for example, that first, this is inside baseball again, first author papers have male names, or sorry, the female names at a rate of 50% Females are first author on a paper, I should say, at a rate of 50% compared to men, at least in certain sciences. And so the stride approach aims to correct that in making hiring decisions by just doubling the number of first author papers that a female candidate says. So if a female candidate has six first author papers, the stride approach would say, consider that to mean 12 first author papers. But it takes into account literally none of the reasons why uh, first authorship to women might not be discrimination. It just says, oh, this is the disparity multiplied by a factor that, that one to one cancels out that disparity. And so should there be a factor that multiplies that? I don't know. Maybe there might be a legitimate reason for it. I don't know, but we need careful and rigorous research to figure that out. I can almost say with certainty, you know, mathematical almost certainty that just assuming it's all that, you know, existence of a gap is proof of, of discrimination in equal quantity is absolutely not going to fly. And so what the method that they're doing is baking in a handicap that's a, if you don't believe in like handicapping anyway, that's a problem. But if you do, it's a handicap that's not justified 
by any rigorous analysis. And when I've asked people that, it, that are involved in these hiring decisions about how it works and if that's a concern to them, they just kind of look me in the face and say, no, why would it be? Right. You know, 50%, therefore double. And, and it's, I mean, the scary that it's scientists that are like not able to see the gap there. Um, but that's so what the ideology does. Yeah, there was a CERN researcher recently who did a presentation on this. Yeah, and, he and got demoured, yeah. On the idea that this gap in authorship of papers was uh, evidence of discrimination. And he did a really good job of pushing back on it. And I think, of course, then was slapped down by his. Oh, his yeah. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't good for him. Um, I think Quillette did a pretty good coverage of, of what happened as a result of that. It's been a little while since I've kept up with it. I know Aereo, I know Helen published something that was quite good on it in, in Aereo as well. The second thing they do, though, is really important. It's a huge, I don't want to steal your thunder, but it's a huge thing, is the creation of parallel fields. So, and this is an explicit tactic that they apply, and maybe, Carrie, you would know a lot about this. I don't know. But so I just reviewed a book for a diet, a, a dietitian. Con, I, actually, I don't think the guy that contacted me is a dietitian, but he works somehow connected to nutrition studies and dietetics. And so there's this book, Critical Dietetics and Critical Nutrition Studies, that he sends me and asks me if I'll do a book review of it. And I say, sure, I'll have a look. And I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. I can't possibly review this book. I don't know anything about nutrition studies or dietetics. Turns out I didn't need to. It's like it never shows up in the book at all. Um, what has been going on is these people started taking critical theory and applying it to nutrition studies and dietetics. And um, they were getting all their papers rejected. The peer reviewers in those fields were saying, this isn't critical or this isn't dietetics. This isn't nutrition studies. And so they created this parallel field, critical dietetic studies or critical nutrition <laughs> studies. Or sometimes you'll see it phrased as the feminist study of technology and science. That's another big one, for example. They create this parallel field. Um, you could even say, like, you have post-colonial math or post-colonial, you know, whatever. You have critical race math. You have critical, uh, sorry, you have, you have queer math. You have all these different parallel adjectival modified um, parallel fields that then create their own journals, start publishing their own books, and have their own rejected scholars that are working in them trying to transform it. And so now you have dietetics and you have critical dietetics and they operate in parallel to one another from the outside. And so, okay, so dietetics is one kind of, of research into diet and health. Critical dietetics is another form. And from many perspectives, it looks like they're just two branches of the same tree when they're definitely not two branches of the same tree. And then eventually what happens is as you go further along, and this was an explicit technique that was used about 10 years or no, sorry, 20 years ago. I don't, I don't remember 10 or 20 years ago in, uh, in the evangelical churches, they, they talked about post-colonial theology, you know, critical race theology, all these different theologies. And, or you could do it with the critical dietetics versus regular dietetics. And what they start to say is, Oh, now you have this critical version or post-colonial version or queer version or gender version or race version. And then you have the original one, which what adjective should go with it? Chauvinist or white or colonialist or colonialist. Yeah. By comparison. And so all of a sudden you have created these parallel disciplines that look like they're a part of what they're actually trying to undermine. And then eventually when they gain enough weight, 
when they get enough attention built up around them or they have their journals last long enough, they are like, we're just another part of that. We are the one that's for social justice and that's the one that's problematic and here's why. And we're basically doing the same thing except, and that's actually a way that they subvert. It is, it is a strategy by which they subvert existing knowledge production methods. So will that creep into the hard sciences? I don't know. They explicitly tried things like feminist physics and, and feminist biology was a big one actually in the nineties. And um, that one did not take off. <laughs> so since those died out in the science wars of the nineties, I don't know if that method will successfully subvert the hard sciences, but it, in these softer fields like dietetics, the effort is still going. And then in, um, you know, kind of everyday things, uh, that the thing is still, you know, clubs, groups, organizations, businesses, et cetera, the thing is still going as well. Uh, I watched the atheism movement fall when atheism plus, plus what? Social justice um, created a parallel entity that then started trying to define itself as the true atheist movement. And then eventually started saying the other atheist movement was a chauvinist one. And then the whole thing eventually imploded. And that has its own dynamic that's describable. But this is actually a strategy that critical theory uses to subvert existing institutions and bend them to their own uh, agenda. And it happens again and again, and it's happening now. And so when you see stuff like, you know, feminist studies of science and technology or post-colonial science studies, I mean, it sounds like, uh, okay, but that stuff's actually truly alarming. Mm -hmm. It is truly like alarming. autoimmune disease in the field Right. It's, it's it is yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a paper that was in 2016 by Brianne Fa Faz F A H S I think, and then I forget who their co-author is because she's significant. And I've seen her name a bunch of times. I remember it, and it was in a small journal called Generos that was about how this strategy can work, and it it's called Women's Studies as a Virus. And the theme of it is that it openly compares women's studies or other social justice scholarship by, by generalization to viruses and not just any virus, viruses like HIV and Ebola that in particular with HIV undermine the existing immune system so that, you know, it can't have the regular defenses that it would have. And I've criticized this many, many times. And occasionally I'll have feminist people fight back with me and say, he says that like it's a bad thing. And it's like, oh, my God, you know, this is genuinely part of the ideology. So these people are comparing themselves favorably to HIV and Ebola. And then activists on the ground are like, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what we're doing. And it's good because it turns out the reason is that they see everything in power dynamics and they think the power dynamic needs a disease and needs to die, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Right. right. Can, I, can I do you mind if I take it? Because I, I know we probably have limited time with you, but I, and I wanted to make sure I got to ask you about this before mm -hmm. you go, um, which is I've noticed that you've started tweeting a little bit about this ideology moving into churches. And yeah. I'm a pretty recent um, Christian. And it's fascinating to me because since we've been doing this podcast, I've had people writing to me from diff different, uh, like Presbyterians, um, Southern Baptists, which I never would have thought it would. Oh be yeah. The Southern Baptist convention Church. and gospel coalition are eaten up with this right now. They're all going to split. It's going to be bad. Yeah. I, what do you think about, I mean, Carter and I've talked about this briefly, but what do you think about the idea that, that Christians make a really good mark or audience for this belief system? I think that's true. Um, so my Christian history, of course, I'm not Christian now. Uh, 
my Christian history was that I was, was begins with while well, I was raised Catholic, and you know it's almost like a joke. You know, oh, an atheist that was raised Catholic? No kidding. Um, but Catholicism is a religion that, whether for good or for ill, and stereotype accuracy is often quite good uh, for telling you something, but not everything. Uh, is strongly associated with guilt. Catholic guilt is a thing. Scrupulosity is a relatively prevalent um, mental disorder that arises in Catholic contexts. For example, guilt is really a problem in in Catholic uh, culture. So I see that that's probably not an accident. Um, I see that the Christian narrative is very, very interested in introspectively looking for for sin of a various kind. My dad used to tell me, he's not a particularly good Catholic either, um, but he used to tell me, I asked him what sin was when I was a kid, and he said it's like having a black mark on your soul, which I never really knew what that meant. But then he always said, well, your job is to look inside and find those black marks on your soul and then try to make them right. And I said, oh, okay. So, you know, you can see that as a psychological process if you want, or if you want to believe you have black marks on your soul. I don't know. I don't know how that works. But at any rate, you have this, whole thing and maybe it's more prevalent in, in Catholicism but I think it's actually really part of the whole Christian narrative because the Christian narrative is admirably based on forgiveness and redemption so forgiveness for what well you have to figure out what you've done wrong to be forgiven for and when you start looking inward and you're looking for those spots where there is that guilt anything that's coming along manipulating guilt as its primary mechanism is probably very likely to be able to latch on um, to to that kind of belief structure. So you see, I mean, white guilt and, and some, to some degree patriarchal guilt are the primary, colonial guilt is huge also, I should say, are the primary vectors by which this radicalizes many of the people, social justice radicalizes many of the people that it, that it catches, the woke version at least. The campus rape culture feminist version, not quite as much, that's more drilling into young women's vulnerability and fears and magnifying it and giving them a, a weapon to fight back against it so they can feel safer and better. It's a different, different conversion mechanism. But in many cases, this guilt-driven white guilt. And so what do you see happening in like Southern Baptist Convention, Gospel Coalition, et cetera? You see people saying these big, long, you know, speeches about sin, and then they point out that white supremacy, which we're all complicit in, now you're getting the critical race language, is a sin. It is one of the greatest sins. It's a sin that, you know, it's a form of original sin that, that's blah, 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 blah. And it's like, oh, wow, these two ideologies are extremely um, compatible in that particular regard, which I do think makes some, but not all Christians, relatively easy marks uh, for adopting a view that sees the tenets that stuff like critical race theory is teaching as being. Um, it, it comports with, with their view of sin. And, and so it makes it more susceptible to it. I don't know, but I suspect they're also less resistant to it um, in the sense of being able to get rid of it. Now, I had a wonderful conversation on Justin Brierley's unbelievable podcast with uh, Esther O'Reilly and Neil Shenvey. And Neil contends, so I want to give credence to his, his view, that this is a battle of worldviews. And so the Christian, traditional Christian worldview is required something like that one worldview is required to displace another worldview so he's essentially saying i don't want to like put words in his mouth or be unfair but from my analysis kind of on the outside uh 
what the philosopher Kolakowski calls a mythological core. One mythology within within a person's mythological core of thinking has to replace another would be his argument. And so yes, you need something like the, the Christian one to do that. And maybe it's more effective. My point of view is that in order to successfully push something like this out, you actually need a reliable way to defer to something objective. Now, I know Christians believe that their, their God and the scripture or whatever present objective truths. But the sheer number of Protestant denominations tells you, I think, from, from my perspective, what's likely to happen, which is rather than that you have this undeniable objective outside thing that people defer to, you instead have this problem where the church can just split and all the woke people can go one way and have their woke version. And if they can make their church you know, financially and, and community viable, then boom, they're in business. And then the not woke version can go the other. Now, of course, if you're a member of something like the Southern Baptist Convention or the Gospel Coalition, or more generally, what's been described for years as a religious right, which is the most power, one of the most powerful, maybe the most powerful voting bloc in the United States politically, um, this would have you properly shitting your pants because you'd think, well, uh, you know, some people can go off and do their own church however they want. They're not real Christians or they are, but they're different, however you want to interpret it. But at the end of the day, you split a giant voting block that you're going to see a lot of fright from, from that, that voting sector, I think. But I, my view still, I mean, I respect Neil and his opinion and my view, and I understand the myth, one mythology versus another. My view is that a mythology that is ultimately down to interpretation is not going to be satisfactory to defeat another mythology that's ultimately down to interpretation. You actually have to have a mythology that says, wait a minute, there is something that we can objectively refer to outside of this, like evidence or something like that in order to make these decisions. Again, I, I respect the idea that the Christians have the belief that God and scripture um, represent such a thing. And that's for them to work with and the best that they can. I don't think it, it does. I think there's only interpretation of the texts. And I think some are more authoritative than others. Of course, it's not just willy nilly. I'm not Derrida, but um, that's, that's my particular view having spent some time looking at this kind of, I guess, as a outsider. So yes, they are easy marks, unfortunately. And yes, it is deeply infecting, even profoundly conservative uh, churches. Now I also say though, it's not the first time that it's infected stuff like the Southern Baptist Convention. I, I think the Southern Baptist Convention specifically has been infected by liberation theology before, which is kind of a version 1.0 of what the social justice critical race theory thing is now, but it's very, very similar. It's talking in terms of post-colonial theology and critical race theology and everything maybe 20 years ago. And it was successfully beaten out by the conservatives who weren't having it. And the way they beat it was by consistently voting out of power, everybody like at their meetings or whatever, voting everybody out of power who held the, uh, those views. And therefore they weren't able to enact their subversion of the church. Did they stop having their woke theology though? No, they just went and did it somewhere else. So it's a problem that I think the church is, is likely to be, uh, facing for a while, and it may be existential for large coalitions like the Southern Baptist Convention. I appreciate you talking about that. You and Carter both are atheists who are who seem interested in this subject, and I appreciate you spending time on it. So, it is interesting. Um, 
you can look at it from the political point of view, like I briefly discussed. That's fascinating how that will play out. Um, you can look at it from the ways that one ideology can parasitize another and the like you were bringing up the compatibility of is there an in inherent compatibility between certain ideologies and others and if so why for example a good question in that regard would be would you think that say christianity is more susceptible to critical race theory infiltrating it than say islam i don't know the answer to that question but it's an interesting one um is there something in islam that makes it more difficult for uh a woke theology to to take over versus, say, Christianity? And I don't know the answer. Um, I, sus I don't know enough about Islam, in fact, to talk authoritatively about it, and I haven't thought about it. But within Christianity, I think there's way too much overlap in the axis of, of using guilt and sin. And then so much in the, the uh, I don't think by coincidence, in fact, so much in the woke, woke theology or woke approach is rooted in ideas that look like or parallel Christian beliefs, that it's got a natural fit. I mean, the idea of privilege is, is essentially exactly like the Calvinist view of total depravity. Um, not just sin, but the corrupting influence of wanting to sin. Uh, the, the sin is its own seduction that makes, you know, that justifies doing it and seduces people into doing more of it. And then you have, you, or you could view privilege or being in a privileged society or state of state as a social, what is the word? I just looked at, ran into it yesterday, social something, social positioning or something of, uh, of, of being privileged would be like being born with original sin. You're born in some way that makes you um, not necessarily inferior, but requiring to do a certain amount of special work in order to reconcile that with the world. So the concepts exist in really strong parallel. Of course, the university system was originally all um, seminaries. And, and so you, the university hierarchy is, has those, you know, bones of how the old theology seminaries constructed themselves and, and, or, and operated themselves. So you even have kind of parallel structures in, in, you know, organizational or institutional space. Um, there's, there's a lot of parallel there that I think, uh, I think does make Christianity particularly susceptible that say may not exist in some of the other faiths. Yeah. I'm not an expert either, but I tend to agree just as an outsider, as an atheist looking at it. Um, it's really concerning. I think, I mean, I don't think that the, and Carrie, this is definitely your world, right? I don't think that the, where, where the mental psychological state that Christianity generates can become negative, say with scrupulosity or something like this, it's often very positive. It often creates people who are better people, who are warm, who are generous, who have purpose and meaning in life and hope and all of these great things. It often creates positivity. And I don't see social justice as being particularly want to produce that. So I would hate to see the theology of something that does create positive outcomes become tainted with something that seems bent on just generating negative psychological outcomes and even negative social outcomes as people start to compete in kind of victimhood space to, uh, I, I don't like to see something that could be more positive in general, get corrupted by something that appears to be more negative. And, uh, and even, it is, it is more negative. It feels like very toxic. It was my, I mean, I call it, it was my religion for 
20 years and it is very, it is very toxic. Um, about your friend who was talking about the two different mythologies, the way I view it is that it, you can't have, something's going to be primary there. So mm-hmm. once a church has adopted this belief system, they're no longer filtering everything through the word of God. They're filtering the word of God through this belief system. Right. That's, a, that's their argument. Both Neil and Esther made the argument that way. And Neil, actually, if you don't pay attention to Neil Shenvey, if you're interested in seeing how this is developing in the church. Oh, uh, I, what's, what's his name? Can you spell it? <laughs> uh, well, Neil is spelled the usual way, N-E-I-L. And then Shenvi, I think is S-H-E-N-V-I. Uh, he's actually a chemist of some sort who is also, you know, very enthusiastic Christian, very thoughtful guy, very under, very interesting guy to talk to. And he has dedicated a lot of his work um, in the last several years to examining critical theory and critical race theory kind of in particular in a very close way and seeing how it's been developing through the church. And he has a lot of stuff he's written about it and he's, he's got a lot to say about it. He's very interesting to engage with whatever, you know, metaphysical commitments he and I may differ on. I think he's got a very keen insight a into how critical theory operates and B how it operates as it warms its way into the Christian structure and why I guess see why that's a, um, thing that can be fought exactly the way that you said by saying that it's taking something that's putting the word of God second to an interpretive lens. Um, if we want to talk about it in terms of postmodern theory, you know, the Christianity has identified that, okay, we're going to interpret the, through the word of God. That's, it's, that's a meta narrative. And then this critical theory thing is another meta narrative that they don't pretend, they pretend it's not a meta narrative. And then, so what you're actually doing is stacking two meta narratives and you're reading the, the lower one through this one that's been prioritized. And you're kind of saying which one goes on top matters uh, for the outcomes that you're going to get. And I think that that's correct. And I think Neil's got some really good insights onto how that works. Um, so he's worth checking out if this is a space you're interested in. Thank you. Um, Carter, should we, Carter, are you frozen? I think Carter's frozen. <laughs> um, hopefully he can rejoin us. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what time you have to go, but we did have a couple of questions in the chat. And, and no, we can go ahead. It's fine. I, I mean, I have okay. a hard stop in a couple of hours, but, and it's a rather surprisingly busy day crept up on me, but at any rate, um, I have some time. Well, we won't keep you that long. I promise. <laughs> Somebody, uh, Herman wanted to know if there's time, if you could talk about your upcoming book. So I'm not saying a whole lot about it yet, but okay. sure. Uh, Peter Bogosian and I, Peter, of course, is another one of the conspirators in our project uh, to expose what we called grievance studies. Peter and I wrote a book, as it turns out, roughly at the same time as we we're doing all this other stuff. Uh, that we had started before we started the project to, to expose grievance studies. And that book is called um, How to Have Impossible Conversations. And the idea is that it provides people with a litany of tools by which they can have better, more effective conversations. We drew from lots of literature on negotiations, just conversation, a little bit from counseling, some from hostage negotiations, like all kinds of cool stuff, some psychology. And, and we put together, and then Pete's extensive background, he is people who don't know his doctoral work was in going into the state prisons in Oregon and using Socratic dialogue to get prisoners to reevaluate their moral commitments so that they would 
be less likely to, to commit crime again in the future. Um, pretty cool. And it had a pretty good, a very high success rate, if I remember correctly. So we took all of that expertise and put it together. So if you wanted to be able to have an impossible conversation, which we don't define as a conversation that somebody's making impossible, we define it as a conversation where there's some deep moral, political, religious, philosophical divide that causes them to tend to fly off the rails or be unproductive or get heated then we've written a book that covers the basics of the conversation all the way up through different techniques and, and uh, that you can use to help instill doubt into the other person. In other words, to get them to not necessarily change their mind, but to go revisit their own beliefs and reconsider them on their own uh, from a position of doubt that they didn't possess before. If you want to use that in a proactive method, there's a technique that's called dialectical synthesis that we talk about briefly that is actually an intentional method of using that with, with a partner um, to get closer to truth, uh, to refine your ideas. And that's kind of a thing that, you know, never gets named, but it's very popular right now where you see these kind of long form discussions where people hash ideas back and forth, or there's that new, um, platform, that new web platform letter.wiki that's doing that. You get two people who have long form conversations in the form of writing letters to one another. And it's basically based on dialectical synthesis. So our book anyway, isn't about dialectical synthesis. It's about to have, how to have these conversations with goals of seeking truth, having an effective conversation, figuring out what the goals and priorities are and navigating that possibly contentious space. And um, ultimately trying to instill doubt if you are interested in, you know, changing somebody's belief structure or having them go revisit some of the beliefs you think they hold too strongly. And so it's, it's an interesting book. Um, it should be out, I think, September 17th. It can be pre-ordered uh, now on any, I, I don't know how many of them. I know it can be pre-ordered now on some of the bigger, like Amazon. Cool. I think I'm back, by the way. Sorry, I've, I know I've been freezing. I think Welcome I've, back. Technically, yeah. but I, I think I'm here. Um, do you mind if I, I just circle back just really quickly? Because there's a couple sure. things about the research that I wanted to talk about. Um, one one criticism that I want that I'd love to hear you address is that uh, the papers that got in were predominantly gender studies and sex sexuality papers, and that, that the sociology and race papers, uh, at least at the time that the study was concluded, uh, hadn't hadn't yet been sure. approved. And the argument goes something like this if I understand it correctly, which is um, the sex and gender communities are much less empirical driven. And so sophistry works a lot better there, but these other communities rely on misinterpreting empirical data and using statistical sleight of hand to push their agenda. So it's actually harder to do that without a lot of data. I don't wonder okay. if you have comments on that. Sure. I think that that's actually true in sociology and, and sociology certainly uses more rigorous methods. One of the primary criticisms we've leveled is that most of these fields are within the humanities. But really, I should say that grievance studies is a method. Remember, it's an approach to cultural studies. So it's not like, oh, you know, the gender, place and culture feminist geography journal is a grievance studies journal. It is a journal that relies heavily upon grievance studies methods is a better way to put that, a more accurate way. Or to say gender studies is a field that is a grievance studies field. No, it's a field that is highly infected with grievance studies. I would say more than 90, maybe more than 95% in gender studies. Sociology from long conversations I've now had with sociologists is probably about a third infected. 
so much less. And so it's also much more rigorous, much more difficult to, to crack into that. So what we've been saying is that these humanities disciplines apply so, or give sociological conclusions without applying sociological rigor. Now, the race situation, the race studies, I think, is not that. Those are in the humanities as well, or they're in education, both of which are pretty easy to crack into. It's If you recall, I said that the problem is much of what has replaced rigor in these uh, journals that are reliant heavily on uh, grievance studies would be these matrices of offense-based rules that you have to navigate. And what I would say is that we understand because of Helen's background and because they're a lot more accessible, we understand the feminist and the uh, sexuality stuff a lot better coming into it. And then we also, um, they're, they're just simpler. There are fewer moving, there are fewer di dimensions to it. The race studies stuff is more complicated. It's more rooted in a deep and complicated history. There are, there's a lot more to critical race theory, not in the sense that it's more accurate, but in the sense that there's just more there than there is to gender theory, which is pretty straightforward and kind of easy to mimic. Um, so I think it's that the, the, the network of rules that you have to understand and navigate in race theory was beyond the level of what we were able to crack. And that, let me let me just point out though, we, we wrote all of the papers that succeed, had a chance of succeeding starting at the beginning of December of 2017. And we finished the last paper in the first week of June. So this was all in seven months that we wrote every paper that had a chance of succeeding. So, you know, the learning curve was pretty steep to have cranked out, in this case, something like 13 of the papers. Um, yeah, I think it was 13 of the papers in seven months with uh, having to figure out what we're doing as we're going. And so I, like, I think, I think the best, just the best explanation is that race theory is more complicated. Uh, I would say our understanding of it is much deeper and better now since we've been doing a lot of this continued work and research, including for Helen's book, uh, which is about um, how this stuff, which we are collectively calling applied postmodernism, came from postmodern critical theory and took up uh, an activist bent in the late 90s or late 80s and early 90s, I should say, and has become the kind of thing that we're seeing today. It sort of a, traces that evolution. So we've learned it a lot better now. I think we could get race papers in now. The other thing is race journals are, there are very few journals comparatively that are dedicated just to the study of race. Um, gender studies journals exist all over the place, it turns out. Feminist journals are pretty easy to find. Uh, but most of the race journals are like critical race and education or uh, race theory as it gets applied to law. So they're more specialist, which makes it a little bit more difficult to speak the necessary lingo or pick up the necessary lingo on the fly and work it in there. So there are reasons. I mean, that's my way that I address that particular criticism. And if, I don't know if it's fully satisfactory. We're still working out the-, the No, that answers. makes sense. I mean, I think the other thing that I've heard, which I think is Daniel uh, Dresner's argument is that you actually learned enough. You you- you, your paper, I think he has this analogy about high schoolers learning to program and uh, in order to, to get around to doing their homework. And, and his point was like, well, you actually did learn enough that your papers should have been published because yeah. you, you, you did the right thing. You just did your homework really well and fast, kind of. That seems to be his criticism. Do you think you 
like to me that's kind of a the time frame you're talking about that that's also just a criticism of the entire field if it's that easy to quickly crank out and learn that field it seems like it's uh yeah i look a lot smarter if i if i were to say that this was really really hard but the thing is is it's not really hard you have there there are some things you have to understand academic niceties you've got to be able to speak the academic language and write the structure of an academic paper so having an academic background helped with that as like a base level but I think honestly, people could take one of these theoretical constructs and in the matter of a few months, if they were really serious, could be conversant enough in the ideas to speak at the research frontier. Um, it's just not hard. It's very, actually, this is a big thing Helen and I have been talking about is, lately and we're probably gonna write about when she gets more time is that one of the features of uh, social justice scholarship is it likes to portray this idea that it's very, high-minded and esoteric and super intelligent and smarter than everybody. They have the one true interpretation, but it's really super simplistic. You can predict what they're going to say every time. Oh, it's patriarchal reward. Oh, you know, it, you can just, you know, white fragility, you know, it's it always going to be, it always comes back. And if you understand this one point and then you just learn the details, it's easy. Just look for the freaking power dynamic and how it's cheating the marginalized person and then bitch about it. That's it. That's really, that's it. Um, and, and if you have to make up a power dynamic that doesn't exist, that's okay. They do it all the time. When the only time I've noticed that they that they remain quiet is when they don't know which tenant or which magic phrase to spit out because they can't calculate who's more marginalized. So for example, yeah. the, the case of the um, uh, transgender woman who's suing the Muslim woman for not giving her a wax job because the Muslim woman didn't want, doesn't, her religion prevents her from giving men. Oh yeah. Up. So I, SJWs, people that believe what I used to believe, they'd kind of, that's, that's the only case I ever, where I see them, they don't have an opinion is where they're mentally trying to stack out, like who's more pressed here. I can't yeah. figure this out. <laughs> and it, it, it's so, it, it's exactly it. And it's super predictable because they've, They've taken complicated sociolog sociological things and condensed them down to the one variable, power dynamic. They've just obliterated everything else. And the power dynamic isn't really power dynamics, by the way. It's this like fictionalized mythology about power dynamics rooted in history and like fever dreams and all this other stuff. That's very, you know, they, they've baked the system so that the power dynamic is very essentialized and very simplistic. It's so... You know, it's like we talked about earlier. You have this number of first author papers that differs between men and women. Why? Well, there are who knows how many factors come into why that happens. I know what it is. Sexism. Yeah. One dimension. Boom. All sexism. You have a black, a black kid get shot by a cop. There's all these complicated things that go into it. What happened? What failed? Something went wrong. Something bad happened here. Or maybe things went right. Who knows? There's lots of details. It's all complicated. What's the problem? Racism. Cops are racist. The end. And then it's, you know, you pick any issue you want. You talk about, you know, the difficult, the gaps of, say, college admissions between different races. What is it? Well, there's socioeconomic factors. There's cultural factors. There's, um, you know, probably, I doubt, I don't know, maybe some discrimination still. There's all these different factors that come into it. And then what is it? Nope. Discrimination. One dimension every time. It's so simplistic. And then they just write it up 
and, and problematize their own analysis. That was one of our tricks in our papers was always to take the core idea that we were trying to forward and find at least one paper that problematized it and then say why we acknowledge that and then nuance around it. But, you know, we're still going to put forward our own idea. It's So it looks like there's all these interesting, complicated moving parts and it's very complicated. And they're talking about very complicated subjects. So they keep saying, look how complicated it is. 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 So it feels complicated. Then they're like, transphobia period period and, and it's yeah. perfect and like you said the only time that it comes into like a major difficulty is when you start having these breakdowns about who would be more oppressed in which situation and which you know which branch of the tree you know the the theory bifurcates and you have to pick one branch or the other and they don't know which one to, to do because they can't do the intersectional calculation in their head fast enough or whatever um yeah. Muslim the program trans- locks up trans- and they, they're they're stuck but that's you know, what it Dr. is. Colin it's Wright, so easy. Yeah. Dr. Colin Wright talks a lot about this on Twitter about always finding, they're always finding univariate solutions to like any, any, you know, there's, here's a massive data and it's always, what's the univariate answer? And it is always something, racism, sexism, whatever. And it's, uh, yeah, he's really good. The, the, this is, what is it? The univariate fallacy or so he's got a, there's another name for it that I don't recall, but he's very good and people should pay attention to him for that where, and you don't just see this. And I want to point that out. You don't just see this with social justice scholarship where they reduce it to a single variable. You see this happen everywhere where there's any politically contentious or whatever issue you see people reducing to a single variable that tells the story that they wanted to tell. You see it a lot. He talks about it a lot in terms of trans stuff, but he's actually given some good examples where it shows up in right-wing analyses around abortion, for example. And it's this fallacy where you pick the one variable that either makes the case for you or the one variable that you care about. And then that you do your analysis on that, that variable and you ignore the suite of other variables that actually genuinely complicate the situation and add information that may paint a completely different picture. So yeah, he's really good on that. I've seen that. Yeah. So I I know I don't know how much longer we've got you, but I, I have my own I don't know if it's a criticism, but it's a it was a head scratcher. I read when I read your your article. Um it, Carter, you're freezing in, up for in, me. In, I'm um, not sure. Arrow magazine tech I'm talking about was. Oh, am I? Sorry. Yeah. Am I right. back? You're, you're back. back. So when we wrote the article for Aereo is all I've got. Sorry. So in in the context of grievance studies and specifically, I think it was in the context of uh, gender studies and sexuality. There's a there's a sentence that you say, which is the majority of scholarship is sound and peer review is rigorous and it produces knowledge which benefits society. And I kind of stopped and scratched my head and thought, where's the evidence that that's true? Because as an outsider, all I see is that, well, there's definitely some broken stuff, but we haven't analyzed anything else. How do I know that anything else that's in these journals is not also broken? They're just having, they just have a different motive than you do, but it's, how do we know it's actually valid? Um, That's actually a hard question. And it is probably the closest thing to a valid criticism that we have. Uh, one of the first things, Helen and I, first of all, just put out an article the other day touching kind of into this, uh, where we talk about the biochemistry problem and the way that biochemistry possesses, for example, rigorous methodologies. They have been robustly checked, and then you can go look, if you want to make a pragmatic argument about it, for example, you can go look. Everything we do within biochemistry freaking works. You know, that's a pragmatic argument that that it's checking out. So in other words, 
biochemistry produces predictions. And when you put those predictions to the test, they succeed over and over and over again. Um, and they have methodologies that produce those predictions and methodologies that create and, and whittle down and refine and, and, and curate those models. And what you have here is another situation where people are creating models, but rather than their model deferring to evidence so that when you put the predictions into, into practice, you see again and again that they work, that you, you don't have that. So I can't speak to the peer review process, except I could say that whatever problems in the peer review process are systemic, as in like corruption by you know conflicts of interest or lazy peer reviewers or overworked peer reviewers or whatever, why wouldn't those hit all fields equally or roughly equally probably and make kind of a baseline? But what I can say is, we do, it's not like we're completely ignorant of methodology. It's not, even in within qualitative methods, we're not completely ignorant of methodologies. Even within things like discourse analysis, which is a humanities, uh, humanities method, we're not completely clueless as to what works and what doesn't. And so um, when you can trust that we've built up a system that produces reliable results over and over and over again in many different fields, and they are adhering very rigorously to those methods and they continuously do so versus where those methods are not rigorously applied and that you can tool the system backwards. You, the, it shows that there's a, something different is going on there. And that's, that's the only contention we make. So the wording in that document, which I will point out, we had to write extraordinarily quickly and for how long it is, that, that means it probably won't be perfect. Uh, under in tremendous stress because we didn't start that document until well after the Wall Street Journal was on the phone with me. And all of a sudden we have a matter of weeks where we thought we had six or seven months to figure out what we had and what to say about it. Um, we, we cobbled that thing together as quickly as we could while retaining as much, you know, force for our argument as we could. So that's a, that's, that's one response to that, that criticism is that I, I see, for example, with like the Qigong papers that just got in within the molecular biology thing, that people like um, Elizabeth Bick, who did it on Twitter, initiated a review process post peer review that will eventually very likely, I can't conclude that for sure, get those papers, seven papers or whatever, removed from the scholarly record for the reasons that they were methodologically poor. You don't see that. There's no tool for that. The only tool for, for that within these critical theory fields, which are ultimately a form of philosophy, remember, um, done poorly, is does it comport with theory or not? There's nothing that bounces back to does theory comport with reality? There's no next level check. It's does it stay internally consistent with this thing that, that this theoretical construct that we have? And that becomes an issue. I mean, that's sort of where... Um, what's his name, uh, Unger, Peter Unger criticized analytic philosophy in his book, Empty Ideas, which is fascinating and difficult to read, by the way, um, where he criticized analytical philosophy as uh, almost across the board. And I think he said something in an interview with maybe Three Quarks Daily about that book, that there are maybe five philosophers on earth that are actually have the necessary scientific background and skill to be able to properly do what would be constituted as an analytic philosophy. And you have this whole, you know, army of people doing it. And in a sense, this stuff that's coming out of these critical field, critical theory fields is sort of on the, I mean, the analytical philosophers would have a heart attack when I say that it's sort of an analytical philosophy tradition, but that's sort of what it is um, on the kind of bad end of their scale. 
So I think that there's a, the, I don't see anything coming out kind of routinely where, um, you know, a very questionable paper gets forwarded in, in say physics or biochemistry or whatever people jump up and they test the thing and they check it to five sigma accuracy. And you have all these techniques to do that. A bad paper, say like the, the transracialism paper that Rebecca Tavell published in Hypatia comes up and what does it turn into? A fight about offense-based rules, about how theory can and cannot be applied. It's not an argument about something that, of course, it's why, because it's philosophy, but it's also how tethered to reality is it? Well, they're not even trying to tether to reality. They just try, it's like, Pete uses that phrase a lot, by the way, tethered to reality. And so I say that they don't tether to reality, but they touch it. It's like they're they're just touching, but they're not linking onto it, like in a firm way, like an empirical uh, discipline would do. So I think that there are pretty, pretty clear things. Our own work shows that there's definitely a wind blowing there and such winds might exist in other fields. But like I said, because the way the methodologies are applied, I don't see any evidence for it yet. If somebody wants to produce evidence that say astronomy has that bias or that poli-sci has that bias or whatever other field, I would like to see it. I would cheer the, the effort to clean up any other discipline, but I see absolutely no reason to believe that you know, the same kinds of research that's sending rockets to Jupiter is, is equally corrupt with something that's forwarding ideas like white privilege. And, and no, no, I, I, and I think so, that makes sense. And I, I didn't mean to imply that. No, I, was no, no, no. It's, it's, I don't take offense to it. It's just, it's like trying to think through that. It's, you know, it's as, as Richard Dawkins famously once said to his own um, trouble, because it works, bitches. Uh, rigorous research. Right. Was, oh, yeah. here's a good example. Here's a good example. I don't want to get too much into inside baseball again, but so the, one of the seminal papers in the idea of performative gender theory was in 1987 by Candace West and Don Zimmerman, and it's called Doing Gender. It's the most cited gender studies paper ever. Um, it was in Gender and Society, I think in the second issue of their first volume, but I don't recall for sure. It's, you know, 1987. So it's, it's a while. It's got tens of thousands of citations. Uh, so this is a foundational text. And one of the things that they do is they apply a technique called ethnomethodology, which now we're really into it, right, in inside baseball, to come up with their conclusion. But it turns out that ethnomethodology would not be, it, it's an interesting tool and it works in certain anthropological contexts, but it doesn't work in that context. In fact, it's guaranteed to produce the result that they were seeking to produce uh, in the context that they used it. So when you have people misappropriating methodologies versus when you have people using them rigorously you're go it's you're in two different you know two different universes in terms of what kind of output you're going to have and then everything like you said that that has a ton of citations and everything is built upon that faulty premise yeah one of our papers cites one of our other papers we could have started to build an entire you know <laughs> false limb of 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 grievance studies it's all just us citing our own bogus crap the hooters paper cites the dildos paper <laughs> i just i, I love never the, thought i'd I love, that, hear that sentence anywhere but but yeah I like there the are some amazing answers. sentences that come out of this i think my favorite still is that the headline on the front page of the new york times on the 5th of october was something like um canine sex and hooters come to academia or something like that and I was like, <laughs> oh my god it's like canine sex <laughs> <laughs> It's well, I mean, it's, rape culture. It sounds like um, 
I mean, I guess this makes intuitive sense that the the more the easier it is to empirically test the results of a theory quickly and verify in reality that it corresponds or doesn't correspond to reality, the more the, the harder. Oh, you're freezing, Carter. It is to infiltrate with bad eyes. Who've you become from that? That the easier. Ah, I think I kind of got your question. What? So, or your statement? So it was something along the lines of that that when you have um, more rigor, it becomes harder to infiltrate because the methods themselves are are. Yeah, more... it's actually. I was actually talking more about tethered to reality. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Have fields that are easier to empirically test in the real world and replicate yeah, and yeah, check yeah. quickly like oh we can quickly test this physics theory does it work sure. yes or no right? right but when it's something like how to organize society or if it's some deep gender issue that's not really quickly and, and easily empirically right. and so you can get away with a lot more the farther removed from physical sure. reality yeah. right and what so what that tells you is that Contrary to what you see in these these theoretical fields, which clearly one can write many, many papers in very quickly if one wants to, uh, contrary to that, what you need to do is exercise more intellectual humility about the conclusions you're forwarding rather than less. So when you see somebody like Robin DiAngelo writing about white fragility, she has a great deal of intellectual humility, if you want to call it that, in her willingness to defer to black voices and to say that she's an inadequate vessel. She has zero, and I mean zero, intellectual humility about the concept of whether or not white fragility is real and in fact universal to white people. Um, that, think of how amazingly bold a claim it is to say that every white person is inherently fragile by their participation in white supremacy that benefits them, which made them too psychologically weak to be able to handle criticism of that or of themselves or of their own participation in it. That is a astonishing statement to put forward with zero intellectual humility behind the methods that produced it. It's, oh, yeah, I keep seeing it come up. And so let me tell you a story. The White Fragility paper starts with uh, a story. And then uh, these have been consistently my experiences when I go to, you know, anti-racism work conferences or whiteness conferences or race conferences and present this material or in front of students or whatever. And so I'm going to summarize it. And this is what I've seen a bunch of times. There's not, you know, okay, here's this concept like white fragility is a thing that could exist. And it probably in, in, uh, is real in certain populations. There's actually a way of trying to work around the idea so that it fits every single white person. So she confronts somebody and says, you're white, you're complicit in white supremacy. And a racist says back, that's a, you know, that's preposterous, blah, 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 and yells back, that's racist. Okay, maybe that actually was white fragility in, in that case. But then some very thoughtful person says, hmm, I don't know. I don't think that's right. And she says, aha, you're white. So it's also white fragility. That's not intellectual humility. That's not the kind of attendant um, self-doubt that ha that's she has the right, she has one kind of self-doubt, which is the wrong kind of self-doubt to produce sociological or scientific conclusions that involve these desperately complicated and hard things. Again, it's, you know, the confidence that can only come with reducing a complicated thing to a single variable and saying, aha, this is it. What she's doing, it's a phenomenon I noticed in my echo chamber with people who I call professional SJWs. So a lot of people who worked in either academia or in journalism or in entertainment, like I did, but um, 
this phenomenon where you would have someone performing what I, I think of it as performing allyship. Uh And it's a way to be, uh, look, I'm a white person and we're all sinful, all white Mm -hmm. privilege, but this is a way that I prove that I'm, I've worked past that and I'm one of the good ones, right? Is is stuff you talk about like apologizing up front and saying, she's Mm -hmm. saying all the right things. And And she does it very well. (laughs) And she does it very well. But what fascinates me and what I think is really funny about this and, and fascinating is that you can never do allyship well enough. No, that's correct. It's going to be people. I saw people criticizing her online talking about, you know, I'm so tired of white women profiting off of anti-racist work. Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 <laughs> like, totally. It's, um, you can be the actually, woke. We got called out on that in a few of our papers is that we were positioning ourselves in one paper as a good white. And in another paper, we, um, had relied upon allyship and we had gone into the theory of allyship pretty deeply and talked about various different types of allyship, but we didn't go into the problematics of allyship except in a very superficial way. We cited one paper, which I can't remember the last name of the author. I can only remember her first name, which is very unfortunate, but we cited one paper about it where the person had, you know, started being a good al- or white ally or whatever and started making assumptions for the black people and bad things actually came out of this. And if you just would have listened to us, so it's a form of bad allyship, but we didn't go into like Keith Edwards and uh, what's his name, Mulally, where they talk about the real pitfalls and problematics of allyship, or we we especially didn't get into performative allyship, um, which is another issue. And then now you've got the uh, this new dimension to it that you just mentioned, which would be like the reward of allyship, or you know, cynical allyship, or something like that, where these people are just trying to grift uh, allyship grifters or whatever. And so you know, it's and y- you can't. It's not possible to ally well enough because the second you start trying to they say that allyship is itself made up of power dynamics because to be an ally means you automatically have to have more power. In other words, you're not really an ally um, because you have to be able to help somebody with less less privilege than you have. And so there's an inbaked power dynamic and to claim allyship makes you invincible to criticisms and it gives you opportunities to grift. And it's, yeah, it's not possible. It's problematized everything, even the solution that you came up with I refer to that actually as the social justice epicycles, like where you talk about, you know, when they tried to do the the geocentric model of the solar system and it's like the planets didn't move right. So they kept adding epicycles, like little (laughs) circles that the planets would wobble on and another little circle. These are social justice epicycles where their theory just isn't working. And so what do they do (laughs) is they come up with a new complexifying point to their theory to make it work kind of for the the problem that it it came up with. Um, Totally, totally a thing thing right it's just like it's uh it's like almost like a necrotic virus like it just eats it eats everything including itself it's just everything is just you know it because it's nihilism at the end of the day nihilism includes destruction of itself yeah 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 it's i mean it, it is actually in that sense um because deconstruction uh and problematization are really the ultimate goals is to pick the thing apart pick the thing apart that changed a little bit with the activism based version that erupted in the in the late 80s and 90s where they started to bake in the power dynamics so that such that they'll be considered permanent or viewed as permanent by usually referring to historical injustices or a historical uh the setting in which that these are all embedded so even if you know i remember seeing at one point somebody making an argument that you wouldn't have gender equality on the Supreme Court until you've had enough female justices 
so that it equals out for all of the past male justices. And then when you have parity across the whole history, that's when there's actual equality. So we're like 240 years behind on female <laughs> justices and have to make up for that. And but until that's made up for, it's not. It won't be equal. It's, it you know, won't be say, equal. Even then, there'll be some reason why that's not enough, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, the usual reason there, it would be, well, within critical race theory, it would be that men just let, of course, we're, we're mixing our metaphors here a little bit, but in, if we took the critical race paranoia and appro- applied it to that situation, it would be that men just let women have it so men would look good. They, they did it for their own benefit. Patriarchy did it for its own benefit by making patriarchy look better by allowing that to occur so so everything 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 problematize everything well james um i just so you know carter i'm gonna have to go soon but i wanted to ask a question about more about like what is your prognosis for where things are going and i'd like to start with the conclusion that i want which is something positive and have you work backwards and prove it (laughs) Okay. <laughs> You're oh, adopting the methodology, that. Carrie. That's great. Yes. <laughs> I can do that. I am actually optimistic, so this might work out. Okay, so where do you see where do you see this? How is this going to play out in academia? Are things going to get a lot worse before they get academia better? Academia is a different ballgame. So I'm much more optimistic right now about culture. I think that we're about to have a very nasty few years, and I don't know what will happen after that. But I think the wind has changed people like the social justice monster is not as cool to fight. And I don't think it's because it's just tired. I think it's because while it's, you know, having these grasp at institutionalizing itself, um, I think people have sensed that the broader culture has turned its back on the social justice warrior type, if you will, approach, not social justice as I do it with a lowercase s and j, but with a capital S, j, ideology driven, grievance studies, applied postmodernism, whatever words we want to use. So, you know, that's, people are turning their backs on it pretty quickly. I mean, I had, I have friends who describe themselves literally as, quote, to use their own phrasing, liberal AF, which they said out loud. Um, They are liberal AF, and they have had it with the social justice warriors. So I see the culture changing more quickly because everybody's sick of it. I think actually we're we're about to see a lot of, there'll be some really ugly stuff first, where everything starts to break that's been building up around this for a few years. And as the people who have vested interest in it proceeding, um, start to lose their power and lash out. But I think that ultimately we're seeing this wave has crested. Now, academia, it's more complicated because you have tenure, you have, you know, people who are in in institutional, uh, what am I thinking of the word, administrative positions who will be very resistant to changing this. And academia changes slowly anyway. Everything changes by careful analysis and long review. I don't see academia changing significantly, even if we were to rally a cry and get lots of academics to to be willing to speak their mind, which I think is possible in the relative near term. I don't think we will see massive institutional changes within academia for a decade. Um, Very concerned about how that will play out as, you know, digital competitors to academia start to emerge. Uh, I do think that academia is something that carries a lot of valuable imprimatur. I do 
I'm one of the old school people who thinks that we, you know, we established the establishment for a reason. It's not to say that it's perfect, but it carries a lot of cultural weight behind it. And it would be in a lot of resource behind it. And it would be really, really unfortunate to see that just thrown away, like throwing out the baby with the bathwater, if you will. But I'm not hopeful that academia is going to change quickly. Uh, decade at least to see significant change, if it comes at all. It may be terminal. I don't know. It's its reactions so far have been less than hopeful, except in quiet, whispered private, where they've been quite encouraging. So I that, don't know. Once that was that, positive enough for me. Thank you. Yeah. Once those people start <laughs> speaking up, the people who are whispering now, things might change in the positive direction more rapidly. But nonetheless, the institutional structure is going to be slow to change. Well, even apart from all of this, just technologically the universe, and financially, the university system is in, in large ways untenable moving it forward. Is, so it's uh, painted itself into a bad corner. Change regardless of all the philosophy. That's right? correct. It has painted itself into a number of corners all at once. Um, the primary one that I would point out on a structural level is that they went to a student services model, business model rather than an education uh, first model. And, you know, they started just building all this expensive infrastructure to make the college more cool and attractive to potential students and their tuition dollars. And then tuition shot up at rates far exceeding you know inflation and now they're absolutely screwed because they have these huge multi-million dollar facilities that if they were to just cut back they can't afford and there will be massive financial problems in that regard you do, academia really in the past 20 25 years has painted itself into a corner i think and it's not a good place to be yeah, no, I, I and and it, for a lot of these people going to college and getting a degree for the amount of money that it will cost you in student loans, you will never make that up in your lifetime. If for a lot of fields, there's just if there's negative value for a lot of degrees, it's and, becoming that way. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It, or it has, I should say. Yeah. Well, on that note, let's hope that I I don't freeze while I'm doing an outro, but. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Lindsay, thank you for, for joining us on Deprogram. Everyone, you can follow him at Conceptual James on Twitter. Is there anywhere else you want to point people to? Yeah, um, the most important place to point people to as far as what we're doing for the moment is uh, we have Mike Nana's YouTube channel. He's doing a documentary film about what we did, and he's he says playing with the footage, and he's also creating other content around these topics on his YouTube channel. So it's just his name. It's YouTube slash Mike Nana, and it's his last name is spelled N-A-Y-N-A. -A. So definitely check out his YouTube channel and um, keep up with what we're doing. Awesome. Well, thank you again for, for joining. And so uh, sorry about the tech. Worked All well good. enough, I think. And, um, yeah, maybe we'll have you back again sometime. It was a great discussion. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Great. For your Thanks. Time. Appreciate it. Bye, guys. Bye.